You are listening to the Twiddly Podcast, a comedy podcast looking back at this week in history. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts. Back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, as always, uh, he may have fooled me, but he did not fool my mother. Oh. It is Jeff McLarge. Hi, everybody. I didn't fool your mother. She saw right through me. I was wearing that my is, transparent uh, Invisible Man costume that Halloween. That is uh, that is it from Psycho, probably my favorite horror movie. Because because uh, it is Halloween. This is the uh, the Halloween week episode. Halloween is coming up on this Saturday. Uh, yep. Uh, that intro music that you heard uh, a little different this week. That is my uh, we did this last year too. Uh, that is my good friend Jerry Vane doing this week's theme music. Cool. Uh, Jerry writes soundtracks for haunted houses. So a lot of times, if you go into a haunted house and you hear some like heavy music playing, yeah, it's probably Jerry. Oh wow, that's wicked cool. Yeah, yeah, good friend of mine. He's uh. He was out in Las Vegas, but now he is located in Columbus, Ohio, I believe. Yep. Yeah. What was your favorite Halloween costume that you ever did? Boy, uh, I think as a little kid, my favorite Halloween costume was this awesome gangster getup that my mom was able to help me cobble together with a suit and a, a machine gun and a hat and stuff. And okay, yeah, you're gonna have to be a little bit more specific. I was thinking like a gangster, like uh, like gangsters paradise kind of. No, like no, no. This is this thing. is more like more like a gangster, like uh, James Cagney or yeah. or. Happy birthday, suckers! Yeah, you'll never take me alive. <laughs> Time of the world, ma. Um, yeah. so that that kind of that kind of a gangster, 1930s style gangster. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and as an adult. Probably my favorite one was I was in college and I had done up a Terminator costume where I used spirit gum and liquid latex to give myself like dented head. You're still pulling it out, I'm sure. With uh, with aluminum foil to show like my skull was exposed. And I learned that it takes an incredibly long time for a shaved off eyebrow to grow back. <laughs> oh, never. From, from never that. shave your eyebrows. Yeah, no. I know that. I know that. Where were you when I was 23, Bill? Oh. About to shave off my eyebrow. So, oh, I could have helped you out with that. No, Elmer's so, glue stick. Yeah, and then put so. Nox gelatin over it. Oh. Anyway, didn't yeah. work. Well, it worked. It was a great costume. Um, yeah, I looked like a man with one eyebrow for about seven months after that. So. Yeah, they take a while. They uh, do take my, a long time to grow back. My favorite costume that I did, um, I knew I was going up to Salem uh, for Halloween. And I knew I knew I was probably gonna run into my ex girlfriend, and I didn't like I didn't want to, you know, right. and uh, you know that could be awkward, you know, and uh, so I dressed up as the Invisible Man, you know, with the uh, the ace bandages around your face yeah, and yeah, the sunglasses yeah. and the, the the neck scarf and all that. Well, it's hard and to it, do it the other way with just not being visible. Right, right, right. Yeah, that, this was a little more practical. Um, <laughs> right. Now, I had those bandages wrapped around my head for like nine hours, right? Mm. And then they were like the medicated kind, like they had a little bit of menthol to them, you know? Yeah. So it was like pressing my nose at this, like like a I, – I, I, whenever I took off the uh, the wraps, I looked like a boxer because my right. nose was just like pressed sideways on my face for nine hours. Right, right, right. 
Now, the next day, I had two huge whitehead zits on the tip of my nose with five smaller satellite zits circling them. It was all for rock and roll, though. It looked amazing. It looked amazing. I can only I can imagine how good that costume I can imagine how good that costume looked because I've seen the care that you put into, yeah. you know how you prep for your time working in the haunted house uh, industry. So, yeah. Years later, I had um, I had talked to the the ex girlfriend and I was telling her about the way I had put that costume together. She goes, "Yeah, I saw you and I knew it was you." I was like, "Come on!" <laughs> She's like, "Saw your sneakers." I was like, "Come on!" <laughs> I put all that care into oh. it. Spotted by the Converse All Stars. Yep, or yep. The, or the Vans. No, they were the Chucks. Yep. Uh, yep. Dead, dead giveaway. So. Dead giveaway. Anyway, anyway. All right, but this is going to be the week beginning October the twenty sixth. Our special Halloween episode. We are going to try to stay on the horror tip, but I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see how we'll see how well we do with this. Uh, we'll do, all right, we'll our, our October twenty sixth, nineteen eighty four. James Cameron, who worked uh, sort of as a all-around, everybody uh, does everything guy for uh, Roger Corman, makes his second feature film, this time starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton, and it is The Terminator, and it comes to help define 1980s science fiction and horror. It also reinvigorates Arnold Schwarzenegger's career, which had taken a little floop since the uh, Conan the Destroyer film had come out. That was a blockbuster. That was that came out of nowhere, yep. and was just like amazing. And you know, practical effects and every it looked cool in 1984. But when you go right. back and watch that scene when he's digging his eye out, yeah, the, it, the, it, it looks kind of goofy. It looks very goofy. <laughs> it looks kind of goofy. I, I sort of like that it's robotic, and I uh, yeah. I think there's a there's an element of of the the milieu that lends itself to that. Right. My my favorite scene is the one with Dick Miller. Dick Miller, the longtime horror actor, and Roger Corman, you know, guest character in a million films, where he plays the uh, the guy that owns the 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 gun store, and Schwarzenegger as the Terminator comes in. and He's like, fifty kilovolt pulse rifle. <laughs> it's like, hey, buddy, just what you see. <laughs> ah, love that. I yeah. first saw that film on Laserdisc. I didn't even see that one in the cinema. So. Oh, no kidding. I, uh, yeah. My first run with it was HBO, which means I watched it probably 150 times in yep. the course of two months uh, when it had its run on HBO. That's, uh, that's something that we don't really do much of these days just because we have way more channels. But like when we were kids... There were certain movies you just watched over and over and over again. And Terminator was definitely one of those. Terminator 2 is one of those rare movies that the sequel is way better than the original. It's, it's, yeah, there's always going to be one person that's going to argue, but come on. I'm not going to argue. I'm just going to say it's a different kind of film than the first yeah. one was. Yeah. But it's although it tells the same story ultimately. Yeah, but um, Terminator 2 is just to me is just surpasses that original. Um, and then I have not seen any of the other sequels, but I have heard horror stories about how bad they are. Terminator three with Christina Loken was, it was okay. Yeah, it was all right. What was it? Christian um, Bale in one of them. He was in, I think Terminator Genesis, which I have not seen. And then there was the most recent one with Linda Hamilton returning and Arnold Schwarzenegger also in yeah. it that I have not seen either. 
Uh, so I think that's what happens is like if they don't start to cannibalize their ideas and become something different like the Predator films did, like Aliens did, like even like the Friday the 13th films kind of did, they either get killed by having smaller budgets or they end up being remade. And I'm saying remade with my little air quotes on my end for a more modern audience, which is usually, I don't know, in film is like less sophisticated, I think, than the audience that came before. So they're usually like degored and they're more violent and the language is a little bit softened and there's usually a romantic subplot that's stuck into it and, and all these things that sort of make it more palatable across a smaller age bracket that makes them less, less that takes their longevity Yeah, away. and the thing is with, with the Terminator, it's like I don't know how many times you can tell that same story where, you know, somebody travels back in time to destroy the future and I don't know, it just... I'm talking out of school because well, I haven't I mean, seen those movies, so I can't. Technically, the Terminator Cameron's film took an idea and some script pages, I think, from an Outer Limits episode written by Harlan Ellison in the 60s called Demon with a Glass Hand. He actually had to pay Harlan Ellison some money oh, wow. because of it. So even even the idea of the Terminator wasn't, wasn't the newest of ideas. Right. Let's move on to October the 27th. All right. <laughs> this is going to be very confusing, okay? All right. I'll... So take notes, everybody. October 27th, 1982, 1999, the album by Prince is released. Well, in 2014, the album 1989 is released by Taylor Swift. And it's the 2015 Billboard Album of the Year, and it won a Grammy in 2016. That's a lot of years all mixed in together there, Bill. For two records. Yeah, we should just come up with an average. (laughs) Yes. Uh, The Prince album, uh, 1999, I remember watching... You know, MTV and seeing the video for 1999, the song, and thinking to myself, Prince, oh, that's a pretty cool name for a band. Kind of like Queen, but now they're Prince. Okay, that's kind of cool. Not knowing right. that it was a dude's name. And uh, and apparently it's not even a stage name. That's like his real name too. Prince, Prince William yeah. Rogers, right? Yeah. So that's his real name. I remember the first time I heard the first song from that, not, uh, Little Red Corvette. Now, it was not his debut album. He had a couple of albums right. up before this one, but they didn't chart. It was on uh, Casey Kasem's like American Top 40. And he actually said, this next song is a debut single from Prince William Rogers or Prince. So I've always known his name because of that one time that it was said. Prince was a, a interesting dude, you know, pop music. I mean, not my favorite genre, but he was always one of those like super, like there's so many songs that he wrote that you didn't even know he wrote. He wrote tons of stuff for other people. And when he got into the big battle with his record company over his name, when he changed it to this sort of unpronounceable symbol so that he could continue to re- release music the way that he wanted to, his records got better and weirder and more funky and dancey and they defied all these different sort of conventions none of them or very few of them had singles that charted but they were all really great really great and records. uh just to, just gonna throw this one in before we get over to taylor swift do you remember the the i call them titcoms the 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 comedies from the 80s that just kind of centered around having nudity in them right. yes do you remember the one called yes like you remember the one called hot, hot dog the movie ah! Okay. Yeah, hot, uh, right. hot dog the movie yes, yes. The skiing there one. was a montage scene and there's this like country and western song that's playing. It's called I Loved You More Than I Did When You Were Mine. I love you more than yeah. I did when you were mine. Prince wrote that song. Yep. That is a Prince song. Yep. Well, Nothing Compares to You by uh, Sinead O'Connor, her most famous track. Yep. That was a Prince song, too. And Manic Monday uh, by the by the Bangles. Sugar Walls by Sheen Easton. Yep. I mean, the guy's all over the place. It was amazing. Yep. If I could go back in time, I would have him collaborate with Barry Gibb. Because he's another one that wrote like a billion songs for people. 400 million songs, yeah. 
right. the, the last of the BGs, the right. final BG. All right, let's get on to Taylor Swift. Talk about her. Let's All right. hear it. So my daughter became a tw- Taylor Swift fan when, when Red came out, and that sort of forced me to become a Taylor Swift fan because I had to listen to it so much. By osmosis. But I really, I, really have, I really have grown to like it, and 1989 is sort of the start of her diva period. It's where she started working with some different songwriters and some different producers to make more poppy records. Mm-hmm as evidenced by the songs Shake It Off and Trouble and some others. And it's a fantastically fun record to listen to. It's way less self-indulgent than the next two, Reputation and the one after Reputation would be. But uh, it's a really fun record to listen to. And and there are some gems on that that aren't singles, Mm -hmm. where it's sort of her and a guitar still doing that sort of pop country style stuff. That is so good. So, yeah, I'm a long-time Taylor Swift fan. I I remember being in your car... And this is like, you know, like I don't listen to pop music. I, I, I just, you know, I, I, I avoid it because we have a radio station down here. I'm sure you remember Fun 107. And like, yeah, Fungus 107. Yeah, yeah. And everybody in like my work, like, loved that radio station. It's like, oh, God. So, like, I, I just don't, you know what I mean? So I didn't know Taylor Swift from a hole in the wall. And I remember being in your car and you were playing the song Shake It Off. And I was like, "Yep, what is what is this?" And you're like, yeah. "That's Taylor Swift." I'm like, "This song's fun, and it, and, it, yeah. and it is." And I think this this is me really reaching here. What constitutes a good pop song is going to be that three chord change. So, yep, I mean, literally, you could take "Shake It Off," put a heavy distortion guitar on it, and you could have the Ramones cover it, and it would you it wouldn't you could do it. It could, it could happen. The weird rappy bit in the middle. Not so it much. Would sound really weird yeah. if 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 Joe Joy Ramone was t- singing about her, her boyfriend that ditched well, her. But Dee Dee would know. have to come in and do that part. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even gonna laugh. Like I like all of her records. I like I like Revenge. I like Ooh, Look What You Made Me Do. Like these are all songs that I roller skate to or roller skated to, and and they've grown on me tremendously. They're super danceable and yep. and fun. All right, let's uh, let's move on to the twenty eighth. Right. Oh, October twenty eighth, eighteen eighty six. The Statue of Liberty is dedicated by President Grover Cleveland, and celebrated by the first confetti or ticker tape parade in New York City. Ah. Uh, yeah, and if you've ever seen videos of ticker tape parades, God help the people that had to sweep up after that. What a mess. Um, it's a giant, and I don't know how the city didn't just burn to the ground. Like you know, at that point, like I think everybody smoked cigars and pipes and stuff. <laughs> So it must have been just a giant flammable rain of potential death <laughs> to celebrate the this beautiful statue delivered to us as a gift from the French. Yep. I've never seen the Statue of Liberty. I've been to New York City a bunch of times. I just never mm-hmm. got that far down there. I've only seen it from the shoreline. I've never I've never taken the boat out to see it or around bit to go around it. And I remember it was a big deal in the eighties when it was re- they like rebuilt the inside because yes. I mean the whole thing is made of copper. Yeah. So copper will that's why it has that green patina to it, because it's slowly but surely uh, oxidizing. And they went and they rebuilt the arm and they rebuilt a, a whole bunch of the, the elements of it that had been weathered. And it was it was the big... Uh, do you remember the movie Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins? I love that movie and I know it's problematic. There's a Korean character in there that is played by a guy who is so not Korean. Yes, Joel Grey. Yeah. yeah, as, yeah, as Chun. Yeah. But it's Chun is a great character. Yeah. And I... I know it's based on a series of books, and I've, I've, I've read like a third of one of them. But I really liked Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. It was weirdly cast. Like the guy that played Remo Williams 
Oh, I can't think of that actor's name. Oh, Fred, uh, Fred Williams. Oh, there's a reach. Yes. Um, Sorry. So, yeah, Fred Williams is always, he always plays, it's always a bit part and he always plays like a jerk. So to get behind him as the hero of the movie was a little weird, but. I like Fred Williams in that only because like it, I read all the books or at the, up to the point where that movie came out, a bunch of the books that were, that were yep. done. And he sort of, Remo is sort of meant to be an everyman. His face is all redone in plastic surgery, so nobody ever knows who he is. He's only known to three people on Earth. And, right. and he, he was funny enough, like Fred Williams has enough comic timing that he could take that ridiculous situation and still make it, you can still make him relatable. Yeah. You know, it's sort of the same way he did like with his character in Tremors. I don't know if you remember Tremors. He was, no. uh, he was Kevin Bacon's sort of partner in that movie. That movie's really funny and it's a great monster movie. Uh, and he plays that sort of same style of relatable everyman type character. So uh, getting back to the Statue of yes. Liberty. Oh, yeah. Why uh, we even brought up Remo Williams, right? Uh, it was a gift from France, which everybody seems to forget. Mm-hmm. Um, they have like a smaller version of that in France. Right. Uh, which is funny because if you go over to France, you're like, what the hell's this little Statue of Liberty thing doing over there? That's the prototype, yeah. right? It's the one that they meant to show, like, look, it's going to be bigger than this. But this is what it's going to look like. It's going to be way better. It's not the scale, of course. Yeah. (laughs) Clearly. Just imagine, like, it's 20 times bigger. Have you ever seen pictures of the Statue of Liberty, like, when it got here, like, from, you know, the pictures from 1886? It's really funny. It's like all, like like I said, it's like like putting together a puzzle. Yeah, yep. it's like, yeah. It's not like it came on. It's not like it came on a barge and they just sort of like tilted it up, plunk into place. They had to build the whole thing from the ground just up. Just imagine like IKEA uh, directions and like with an Allen. It comes at one Allen wrench. It's like, oh no! I thought you said this thing was called the Statue of Liberty. Why is this called the Ilson Jurgle? <laughs> and there's a coupon. There's, you know what? There's a cabinet in the bottom. You can you can put DVDs in there. Oh, well, like I said, the reason we brought up Remo Williams before we lose the thread of the conversation, yep. right, was that the centerpiece of that film was the, a big fight on top of the Statue of Liberty yes. while it was being uh, refurbed, and it was actually shot on all of the scaffolding that was running up and down the side of the Statue of Liberty for that mm-hmm. year. In case you ever find yourself late night watching that, that's that's worth. Yeah, about. that's and that's another thing, you know, for us Gen X uh, kids, that that scaffolding was around the Statue of Liberty for a couple of years. It's like yeah, that's yep. to you know as a teenager that's what the Statue of Liberty looked like to me. It wasn't like they hired a bunch of dudes like out of the parking lot from from uh, Home Depot <laughs> like hey you want to go work on a statue today so it was a big deal. To the point when like where it came down the scaffolding not the not the statue but when the, when the statue right. uh, when the scaffolding came down it looked wrong you know you were just so used to seeing yep. it with the scaffolding. Yep. All right so let's move on to October the 29th. So October so. 29th 2011, a monster of a snowstorm just whacks New England, and uh, certain areas got over a foot of snow, which is outrageous for October. And it wasn't just the snow. It was like... 100 mile an hour winds that day too i remember i was in new bedford yeah, you were down you were down here down. and i was up there yep i had i had come down to run a road race a halloween uh road race on the 30th you know dressed in my captain marvel costume picked up all the running stuff for my son and i and the weather turned terrible and the race got canceled uh it was awful. The, did it, did it snow I, down I, here it's it snowed in new bedford but it didn't snow it didn't okay. stick i think the wind was literally so it blew all the snow to new hampshire yeah. 
I think is what happened. So uh, uh, I was working for a haunted house up in Litchfield. Um, and, you know, we used to get hotels, my, my friends and I, uh, when we worked up there because it was just easier. You know, if we split it four ways. It only came out to like 30 bucks a night. So it was really cheap just to stay up there. Uh, my friend Sean and I had the hotel and then his brother and his brother's girlfriend was supposed to come and meet us. But they were like, it is snowing so bad. We don't we don't want to go. We don't want to leave. Right. Work yep. ended up getting canceled that night at the haunted house because it was just so much snow. Uh, everybody that worked at the haunted house, like the management and stuff like that, had to stay up all night knocking the accumulated snow off of the roof of all the haunted houses because they were just tense. And it was a very tense <laughs> situation. But yeah, they... They had to work around. I was trying so hard to pull that to pull a joke for that together, Bill, yep. but you beat me to it. Here I am at the finish line. But yeah, the the management and all that had to like work around the clock, just constantly knocking the snow off of the roof of the tents. And I remember we opened right. the next day with these like just mounds of snow around all of these haunted houses. It was such a weird picture of you know here it is. Yeah, it's the. Imagine. It was October 30th when we had opened. It's the night before Halloween, yep. and there's just these mounds yep. and mounds of snow. Mounds yeah, of snow. Everywhere. I, I ended up staying. I think I stayed at my mom's for three extra days because there was no power at oh, my right. house. Yeah. I, at the time, I didn't have a dog or anything, so we were able to do that. And by the time I came back, things had started to sort of kind of go back to normal. There was electricity in the neighborhood that I lived right. in. Your wife and, was out of town, you said, and too, I could, right? Yeah, she was in Oregon, uh, fortunately, called to taunt me <laughs> because she was watching the watching the weather from the West Coast. But yeah, it was that was a crazy one. Yeah. All kinds of trees down. I remember driving back, and as you got closer and closer to New Hampshire, the more destruction there was. It was amazing. I've been working with the haunts and the Renaissance Fair you know, for 20 years now, and it's certainly not the first time I've seen snow during my work season. But absolutely, right. that was the worst. I couldn't believe worst. that. It was Yeah, it was uh, up in New Hampshire where we were. I think it was like 16 to 17 inches worth of snow. Oh, yeah. It was it was a blizzard. It was a full-on, like, right off the ocean, crazy time, you know, blizzard. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was, in, it was madness. Madness. All right, so let's... Madness. Madness, I tell you. All right. So, so, so speaking of destruction... Yeah, speaking of absolute madness and destruction, what do we have for October the 30th? Or October... Th October 30th, 1938, a radio broadcast of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds, adapted for radio and narrated by Orson Welles, performed by the Mercury Theater Company, allegedly causes a mass panic when it's broadcast nationwide. Now, there's some discussion about whether or not people really did, like, start making a bunch of phone calls to the local police stations and people were running around in New Jersey trying to find space spaceships and crashed Martian landers and stuff. But... It really does sort of set the tone for the idea of meta entertainment. Do you, have you ever listened to the to the recording of the of the uh, the radio broadcast? It's really we fun. actually did it as a radio play when I was in elementary school. So yes, <laughs> so yeah, yes ish. The, like the way that the radio play worked was they announced that it was the Mercury Theater and they were going to be doing the War of the Worlds at, on on the radio, and they were only a handful of channels that were broadcasting simultaneously across the United States. At the time it was CBS, NBC. They were opposite another show 
called the uh, Chase and Sanborn Coffee Hour with Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen, which was the most popular show in the United States. Mm-hmm. People tended to tune in to see if they were going to be what the guests were going to be on for Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen, and then tuned in to see what was going on on the Mercury Theater. So th- those that tuned into the Mercury Theater didn't hear that it was the Mercury Theater doing an adaptation of The War of the Worlds, wow. but they heard like a live radio show with a band playing, and like they'd heard thousands of times before on other shows where it's like a radio variety show. Right. But in this radio variety show, it gets interrupted by news of this weird these weird things that are crashing in in New Jersey and no one really knows what they are. But then they go back to the show and they keep playing music and they have singers and stuff. And then they get more and more frantic news reports until it becomes all news report at the end. It's a fantastic way to do it. It's almost like the, the birth of the found footage idea, right. right? You don't really realize what you're looking at until you see that it's like a horror movie, right? And, and that's kind of what happened. So I'm sure that some police stations and stuff were called to find out what was going on. And they were like, I don't know what you're talking about. There's no, there's no Martians yeah. in, you know, Sutter's Grove, New Jersey. That's not even a place. Yeah, yeah um, the sensationalized, like, rumors of the things that people were, like, committing suicide and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's always, that was played up a lot. The thing is, though, is, like, is, is Orson Welles had to come out the next day and pretty much apologize. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see the, you can see the film of that, too, if you, you know, it's on YouTube. And it, usually if you see a documentary about this, that, that's there. And he's like, geez, you know. Golly gee, the beauty of, of doing this kind of theater is that you never know who you're going to touch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know. So that was that. It always made me think of like the stories I used to hear too that people would were, were calling like the Coast Guard to complain that no one was going to pick up Gilligan and the other castaways from Gilligan's <laughs> Island because they didn't realize it was a sitcom. But I don't know if that's true either. But I, again, I've heard that as a rumor and as well. And then the famous one about Fargo too, the movie Fargo. Where there was a a, a mm-hmm. woman that went looking for the the suitcase full of money and the suitcase full yeah, of gold, and yeah, freezing to death, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, she found yeah. it. <laughs> uh, so I I forgot to do it at the beginning of the show, and seeing as uh, yes. the next day is Halloween, I will kind of do it now because the my my Fair trivia enough. question is horror related. Uh, oh, I yeah, like those. The Friday the Thirteenth series takes place in a fictional location known as Camp Crystal Lake. Now, even though it is never actually said in the movie, it is implied, what state is Camp Crystal Lake located? Well, it's in a terrible state. I mean, ah. The place has been abandoned for years. <laughs> it's in a state of disruption. A terrible state. It's a state of decay, didn't you yep. see? Well, I don't want to take a guess yet. I want to take a guess at the end of the okay. show. So, all right. Let's give everybody some time to, to ruminate. To, yeah, roll it over. Roll it over in your head. Roll it over. All right, uh, we're going to move on to Halloween. And instead of doing what happened on this day in history, uh, we have decided that we are going to talk about our own personal stories of our favorite Halloween ever. Uh, yes. So uh, I will start and I will honk my own goddamn horn on this one. All right. So uh, prior, prior to being a haunted house actor... I used to play in a band. I was in a band called Too Many Gents. It started in 1995, but the day I'm going to talk about in particular is 1998. The band was in between bass players, and <laughs> we were trying to teach the new guy new songs. And we used to I we used you. to jam on uh, on Misfits covers all the time. Halloween okay. was coming up, and I said, "Why don't we do a show to kind of like introduce the new guy? We'll do it on Halloween, and we'll do all Misfits covers, and we'll even dress up like them." 
And we did it in 1995, and the show went over, you know, fantastic. We opened up for the Rocky Horror Picture Show someplace, and we actually sold out the room before any of the Rocky people showed up. It was hilarious. Yeah. Wow. We did it again a couple of years later, but in 1998, once again, we're back at the UMass Dartmouth, and we're opening up for the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and we promoted the holy hell out of that show, and the uh, the internet was kind of like still in its infant stages, and, and we right, promoted right. on a couple of Misfits fan sites, and we had people from, I'm not going to say all over the, the, the area, but we had, we had people as far away as like Springfield that came down to see our show. Yeah. yeah. So, and this is, this is 98, yeah, you said? Yeah, 1998. 98, wow. Yeah. So I can't even imagine what it's like to, to try and like promote stuff on the internet. Like you pretty much had America Online. Right. And like CompuServe and Prodigy, and those were your... <laughs> ISPs at the time. Right. But yeah, there was a website called tvcasualty.org or tvcasualty.com wow. or whatever it was. And they promoted our show for us. And yeah, I remember this one kid coming up to me at the end of the show and asking me for the set list. And I was like, you know, we're not the real band, right? He's like, no, I know, I know. I just thought that was a great show. <laughs> and then the guy's name, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say it because, uh, you know, cases are was it glenn was it glenn danzig it was not it was oh. it, it rhymed with uh gory frog let's just say that and um, all right but he ended up i can't rhyme that with glenn danzig no, no matter how much i no. try yeah it's a tight it's a tight fit but it's a tight fit but his name ended up going around because he was like selling stuff uh like rare misfit stuff on ebay that didn't exist and then he would just like steal people's money back when you could back when you could do that sort of stuff. And I remember seeing the, yeah when the internet was new. Yeah. And I remember seeing the guy's name. They're like, stay away from this guy. I'm like, stay away from him. He's probably gonna sell my set list. Right. Or he's gonna photocopy it and sell copies right, of it right, for right. two dollars and ninety five cents yep. each. So what was your Amazing. what was your favorite Halloween? Or what's your what's your uh, Halloween tradition? Well, my, okay. Halloween traditions here are, as my kids have gotten older, it's become more fun, which doesn't seem like it makes sense. But, like, my son and his girlfriend get dressed up now. My daughter gets dressed up, like, three different times. We She, she trick-or-treats the same neighborhood, but she changes costume each that's, time. So she gets three three times as much candy. That's uh, Her and her friends do that. I, I freaking love your daughter. She's amazing. It's she's, she's They're super funny. My kids are super funny. And and they usually go as a big crowd, and it's, a, it's really fun. And I... I stand. I stay home with the dog, and I hand out ca- candy. And uh, I always comment on the little kids that come up to my to my front door, and I'm, you know, I give out I give out a lot of candy. And we live in a neighborhood that's really conducive to trick or treating. It's very quiet. There's not a lot of cars. It's like a cul de sac type neighborhood. Yeah. And there's a lot of teenagers that come that come too from outside of the neighborhood and and stuff. And I make them. They have to tell me a joke, or, or they don't get any candy. Huh. So I that's where I pick up all my terrible. Uh, my terrible Toastmasters quality jokes is from all these teenagers who are like, oh, why, why are the chicken cross the road, sir? I'm like, I don't know. Tell me to get to the other side. And there you go. There's your Milky Way bar, your fun size Milky Way bar. Get off my porch. But it's really fun. And then once trick-or-treating is over, I usually come inside and irrespective of which, which night it is, I always watch the same couple of movies. I watch Haxan or Witchcraft Through the Ages, this Danish film from 1922, which is really weird and creepy, and I watched Nosferatu, which is really weird and creepy, and then I watched uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is a lot of fun and really silly and singable, and then I crash out and fall asleep. So, so that's that's what Halloween tradition is like here at McLarge House. 
Alright, so Halloween is over and everybody's sad. Uh, November the 1st is absolutely the saddest day in my life because Halloween is over for another year. But uh, that doesn't stop you from giving us... And November 1st, 1974, the day after Halloween got a little bit happier, Bill, because that's the day that Hello Kitty debuted. Oh. And as goofy as Hello Kitty is... You say Hello Kitty anywhere, I think, on Earth, and people are going to smile at you because they know exactly what the kitty looks like in Hello right. Kitty. It, that amazes me that it's 1974 because that seems like it's much newer. Yep. It's an amazingly robust trademark, and it's robust because Sanrio is the company that produces it. will l- l- pretty much literally put Hello Kitty on any yeah. item. I mean, if you built a chainsaw, you could get them to sell a Hello Kitty chainsaw. <laughs> you could get them to sell a, a Hello Kitty bidet. I'm sure they probably already do. When there was a time when, you know, my, my daughter was young and Hello Kitty was everything. I made her Hello Kitty birthday cake for her fourth birthday. And we used to save our pennies and our spare dollars so that we could go every few months to the Hello Kitty store. There was a Hello Kitty store in the mall. And their stuff is fantastically expensive. So I'd be like, come on, I've got 20 extra dollars. Let's go to Hello Kitty store. And she'd be able to buy like... Four pencils. Yeah. <laughs> Not even a barrette. No, four pencils. And it, like, I'd have to put two pencils back to get the barrette <laughs> and like a plastic comb or a picture of Hello Kitty. And it was, it's crazy. And, and, but the store wasn't just geared towards like little seven year old or six year old girls. Like in there, there's like the Hello Kitty coffee maker. There's the Hello Kitty toaster that puts Hello Kitty on toast. There's a Hello Kitty waffle maker. There's the Hello Kitty crosscut shredder. <laughs> like, what the hell is it? Why would, why would anybody need a Hello? It's just a crosscut shredder with a picture of Hello Kitty on it. But it was there. Here's the thing, right? While you're saying all this, I'm thinking to myself, that's kind of like Kiss, you know? <laughs> like, yes. Kiss will put their name in. in the, I mean, there's a Kiss coffin, you know, Kiss condoms right. notoriously. And I was just right. curious, as you're talking, I was like, I wonder if there is Kiss Hello Kitty stuff. I'm sure that the, the sworn enemy of Hello Kitty is probably Gene Simmons. You bet your sweet ass. There is Hello Kitty Kiss crossover stuff. Oh, see, that, again, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. There's, the best part about it is there is a Hello Kitty Gene Simmons Funko Pop. That's just the world right there. But it's, it's crazy. like, And the stuff is so like weird and iconic. I have a Hello Kitty coffee mug that I bought for my daughter when, it, when she was little. Mm-hmm. And it came as like a Hello Kitty coffee hot chocolate thing with a little plate yeah. and a cup. And I still have the cup. And I still drink out of that cup almost every day it's my second favorite coffee mug because every time i pick it up i think of well, i think of my daughter and i think of how much she loved hello kitty and i get a, like a look at this ridiculous hello kitty cat it makes me smile no. which is exactly what that kind of trademark is meant to do so if anybody wants to send me a hello kitty crosscut shredder you can do that p.o box at, you know but um no it's crazy like it's now, a it's, answer, it's, answer uh, me this answer me this you do. Yeah. hello kitty Outside of just being like a, a trademark stamp, you know, not unlike, uh, you know, Gene Simmons and the Nike swoosh, was it ever like a thing? Like, was it a cartoon that kids could watch? It eventually became a car. I have a DVD of, of Hello Kitty cartoons, but they came out way after 1974. I don't know what the first Hello Kitty thing was. It was probably like a decal on a backpack for all I know. That's, yeah. Yeah, crazy. And, and in a case of insane coincidence, uh, the guy who illustrated or created hello kitty was born in 1946 on the same day november 1st 
Yeah. And then, there was a couple of years ago he came out with like a he made like a public statement saying he said that Hello Kitty wasn't a cat. It's like, all right, you're just being difficult. You're like the guy that says it's pronounced yes. GIF when it's a GIF, damn it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't know about that, but it's clearly a, it's clearly you know, a cat. Peter so. Chris is not a cat. He's the drummer. Okay. Right. All right, let's get on to the celebrity birthday. I love it. All right, so I'm going to start with okay. October the 26th, 1951, Bootsy Collins, the yeah. funkiest bass player that ever funked the bass. Yes. Uh, hear his work in Parliament and Funkadelic Records. Fantastic stuff. Mm-hmm. He, um, he was also uh, famously with the One Hit Wonders Delight with Groovers in the Heart. Yep. Did that opening for them. Yep. Yep. Uh, no, he was uh, based on the uh, on the track, too. And then uh, Bootsy did a, a number of solo albums, and there's a drink named after Bootsy Collins called the Bootzilla, which was dangerous. It was very. It's a very sweet drink. It's like uh. four... Four very powerful but sweet alcohols. Oh, that's that's never a good thing to mix together. Yeah, once you drink one of those, you're going. All right, so happy birthday, Bootsy! Moving on happy, to the twenty seventh, yeah, uh, October twenty seventh, nineteen thirty nine. English actor and one of the founders of Monty Python's Flying Circus, John Cleese, uh, is yeah. is unleashed upon the world. So other than his work with uh, Monty Python, he's known very well for being in the, the very short-lived but still considered best of all sitcoms, Faulty Towers. Yes. And for t- having a film career with uh, stuff like A Fish Called Wanda, some other films like Clockwise, and I'm trying to remember the other one. There was a zoo-themed one that I... I can't remember the zoo-themed one. The, it was a, effectively the sequel to A Fish Called Wanda. John Cleese is actually one of my favorite styles of comedian, the straight man. Yes. I mean, obviously, he did the uh, the Ministry of the Silly Walks and stuff like that. He, he normally plays the straight man, and he has such great deadpan delivery. Right. You know, right up there with uh, the other two greatest straight men in show business, Bud Abbott and Dan Aykroyd. I love his stuff. I quote him at annoying length, and uh, <laughs> I, I still go back and listen to the Monty Python records with my kids now and then and uh, listen right. to how listen to his his command of the language when he's doing these ridiculous pieces uh, next up is October the 28th one of the most beautiful women in the world Elsa Lanchester and she was born in 1902, uh, 1902. Elsa Lanchester is the bride of Frankenstein she has amazing taste in men in that movie <laughs> I think The Bride of Frankenstein is one of the most beautiful things that Hollywood has ever produced. But if you ever see Elsa Lanchester, like with her hair down, yep. like uh, when she's not looking like Marge Simpson. Yes. Um, yeah, she's not quite. I don't know. There's something about the makeup that they did on her for um, for The Bride of Frankenstein that just, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just drawn to it. I don't know what it is. She also, uh, in that film, she... At the very beginning, she plays Mary Shelley, right? Yes. Because yeah. it has the opening and closing segments with Mary Shelley and the others at the, the, the Vienna or the Austrian villa where they where Shelley wrote the first Frankenstein. That's another one that often comes up whenever they say the sequel is better than the original. Yes. All right, Agreed. next. All right. October 29th, 1971. Many of us Gen Xers' first crush, Winona Ryder, mm. uh, an actress from Heathers, uh, Edward Scissorhands, she certainly fell into the uh, the Tim Burton thing with uh, Beetlejuice. Yep. She was born in 1971 yep. in uh, Minnesota. Yeah, she was... She was actually born in Winona, Minnesota. So she's Winona Ryder from Winona, Minnesota. Yep. 
she had a she had a bit of a sticky patch there with the whole you know shoplifting uh, bit in the uh, in the late nineties and early two thousands. I think she was married to I, mean, I don't know if she still is, but she was married to the guy from Soul Asylum. So perhaps she was stealing him a comb or something. Uh, <laughs> or she was doing it just so well, she could get away from him practicing Runaway Train. Oh, my God. Those That band has the worst lyrics. They're, they'll pop up on Worst Song Era, I'm sure. <laughs> God. Moving on to the 30th, the coolest guy in Milwaukee, Henry Winkler, 1945, yes. better known as The Fonz. The Fonz, yes. For those who remember the Happy Days TV show, yep. that's that's him. For those of you who don't, are thinking to yourself, like, Happy Days, man, I don't watch that. I'm not yeah. old now. Yeah. He was also in Arrested Development, yes. and he's been in a bunch of movies. Really funny, funny dude. Yeah, really I, uh, funny guy. I I met him in passing at Mohegan Sun. I was there for a Comic-Con. I was doing my Tony Stark cosplay, and he came walking by me, and he actually did a double take. And then I did a double really? take. Yeah. I was like, who's this looking at me? I was like, oh my God, that's the Fonz. Holy cow. <laughs> Uh, interesting thing nice. about um, Henry Winkler is he was just about... 30 if he wasn't already 30 when he started with happy days he's dyslexic so he couldn't read the script it must have been tough every time he saw the lines for this knock <laughs> so <laughs> he um yeah he, he had to have somebody read the script with him and he memorized yeah. the lines that way yeah yeah all right next up ah <laughs> uh, okay october 31st halloween itself making his trick-or-treat debut in 1950 is john candy Oversized, uh, both in heart and 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 in quality of comedy, mm-hmm. actor who uh, made his mark starting with SCTV and transitioned that into a very good career in Hollywood, where he made some of the most memorable funny films of the 1980s. Was born in Newmarket, Ontario. Yeah, he was so funny. You know, he was a he was a big dude. He was a large guy. A lot of people compared Chris Farley to John Candy just because they were both like bigger dudes and all that. But, but like, yep. I don't know, man. Chris Farley, he kind of, like, played into the fact that he was fat. Where John Candy, I don't re- really remember him really using that. I don't know that it was ever, like, a, a component. But it, it definitely was the sort of character he played, that sort of schlubbish yeah. or comedic because of his looks. Like, if you remember him in, um, what was the movie with uh, Tom Hanks that he was in, where they both get captured by the Chinese oh, when they're in the Peace Corps? volunteers where he immediately become <laughs> immediately immediately gets Stockholm syndrome and becomes like the most Chinese person of the yeah, Chinese army. He always played like um, a bumbling idiot, but like it wasn't yeah, yeah. like it, it could have been anybody. It didn't have to be a big dude, right? Right. Yeah. It didn't have to be a big dude. And then and then when you have films where he plays a big dude, he's always big and gentle like in yeah. Uncle Buck. Or he plays a part where he's surprisingly gentle and human like the cameo. My favorite thing that he's he ever did was the 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 little tiny scene that he had in Home Alone where he's in the he's like the guy that runs the polka yes. band and they're they're driving the mother with the mother who's finally made it back to the United States from France after leaving her kid. And he has that conversation with her about parenting and fear and it's this amazing moment where he's not playing for laughs or anything he's just delivering this really good comforting safe conversation with her that eases her and makes it so that she can refocus and continue on with the work that she has to do to get to her son i thought that was really fantastic so yeah my favorite of his films is delirious uh where he's a a soap opera writer that gets pulled into his own soap opera and becomes like the romantic hero of the soap opera it's a really 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 good film and it didn't play to the sort of the pratfally kind of comedy that he was more known for it's well worth seeking out yeah good stuff and wrapping up the birthdays november the 1st 1942 
uh, controversial man, if there ever was one, Mr. Larry Flint. Champion of the First Amendment. Yeah, and Larry Flint was the publisher of Hustler Magazine, a great movie that came out in the in the 90s uh, with Woody Harrelson and Courtney Love and Ed Norton, is uh, The People versus Larry Flint. Now, Larry Flint published pornography, but he was such a champion, like you j- just said, of the First Amendment. That movie and Larry Flint's story is just very, very interesting to show yep. how the law actually works and what the yep. what the First Amendment is, what it's there for, and what it's there to protect. Yeah, he's been sued more times than you can shake a stick at. Yeah. Probably the most famous the most famous suit was from uh, Jerry Falwell, where he had printed the he had printed the Jerry Falwell like romance story where he had sex with his own mother. Yeah, <laughs> Jerry Falwell sued him for slander. Yeah. And it was obviously intentional parody, and and he was able to sort of skirt being sued for pretty much his entire estate. Right. Interesting guy, definitely agent provocateur. Yep. Shot and almost killed in front of the courthouse at one point, right. and uh, lived a life paralyzed since then. Amazing, amazing dude. Uh, he actually still has a uh, what I will laughingly call a gentleman's club uh, just outside of St. Louis. Uh, whenever I would go out there for the trade shows, my uh, my roommates would always make sure they headed over that way. Surprisingly enough, he's still alive. He, yeah, yeah. Yep. He's uh, as of this recording, he, he's turning seventy-eight years old. God love him. So amazing. All right. Well, rock on, Larry Flint. Yeah. Happy, Happy birthday. birthday, Larry. But you know what that means? It's time for the next segment, which is the worst song ever. Ever. And today is the worst songs ever. Yeah, we got two. Yep, we have two today. They're Halloween-themed. Uh, I'll bring up one, you bring up the other. What do you have? I'll let you go first. All right, fair enough. I have got the Halloween-themed terrible Will Smith, or at the time, uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the French Prince song, Nightmare on My Street, from the 1988 film Nightmare on Elm Street 4, I think. I think that's from 4. It's from 4. That's the dream child. The dream child. Yeah. Yes. One of the lesser of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Yeah. yeah I mean, just the uh, year before, Dawkins had... Well, not the year before, but this, the movie before, Dawkins did the right. Dream War. The, the Dream War. Dream Warriors, Warriors. Yeah. And that was, I mean, okay for its time. But then, yeah, Nightmare on My Street. Uh, hold on. Let's play a clip. The lady was chill. Then we dipped to the theater set to ill bugging cold having a ball. And something about Elm Street was the movie we saw. The way it started was decent, you know, nothing real fancy about this homeboy named Fred and this girl named Izzy. But word when it was over, I said, yo, that was death. And everything seemed all right when we left. But when I got home and laid down to sleep, that began the nightmare on my street. Yeah, um, not not for me. Not not, not a great not song. Yep. Yeah, and it's it's kind of pandering, you know. <laughs> Doesn't do it for me. And I mean, both of the songs that we have today. Let's 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 do your first, and then we then we'll talk a little uh, bit. Uh, well, the thing too is, and, and my song leans into this as well. There is a term or a word that has been like used in the past couple of years, probably a lot longer than I'd like to admit, and I hate it. It's called it's it's spoopy. S p o o p y. And it and it right. means like scary but cute scary. And right. whereas me is I like horror, and I don't want my horror to be cute. I want my horror to be right. you know, horrible. horrible. Yeah. yeah. The Adams family being a a weird kind of contrast to that because the Adams family is funny, but they're so morbid. You know. It's it's creepy. Yes. It's kooky. Yeah. It's altogether. But kooky. it's not spoopy. 
You know what I mean? It's not cute. It's it's dark. It's very dark. I, okay, I'll I'll I'll, I'll I I'll yeah. allow it. Um, <laughs> it's not hocus pocus, is what I'm saying. Yes, that's true. Yes, it's, it's not, not hocus pocus. Spoopy. But this song. Speaking and thinking about the Adams, you know the hammer is with it. Act a fool, no balls, swoop, goofy and Randy, you know we kick it. Now is the time to get in your mind. It's okay to be yourself. yourself. Take foolish pride and put it aside like the Adams. Yo, they dead. That's a family. They do what they wanna do, say what they wanna say, live how they wanna live, play how they wanna play, dance how they wanna dance, kick and they still friends. They do what they wanna do, say what they wanna say. Is our good friend MC Hammer. Doing the Adams Groove, yes. which was at the tail end of uh, the Adams Family movie uh, for the the closing credits. And I, I think at the time that these came out, that was 1991 that this that this record came out. By the way, and uh, went to went to number seven. It charted amazingly. It charted and went to number seven. And and Nightmare on My Street went to number fifteen, uh, which is probably a little low for. Fresh Prince Will Smith at the, the time. What the hell is the matter with this country? So l- let me let me explain. I, I think this is you know we we've talked before about how MTV sort of became a different channel and stopped playing music, yeah. right? I think one of the reasons that they did is that they that studios specifically realized they could use MTV as a vehicle to sell their films and by producing a record that was part of the right. film. So if you look at stuff like. Will Smith didn't just do this one. He did the Wild Wild West and some other films right. too. MC Hammer did a couple of things. Vanilla Ice did a couple of things. Did one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles yes. movies. And there's a whole bunch of songs like even Whitney Houston and and others that are tied to big Hollywood films that just get relentless advertising over and over again because they're on MTV and then they chart. So, so you know, I don't know if that was one of the factors that drove MTV to start putting like, let's just put people in front of a camera in a house until they yell at one another. <laughs> Um, TV, but that's kind of what happened. When that sort of ended, a lot of that soundtracking into popular music has dropped off considerably. Think about stuff like most recently, just a few months before the summer, right, was when they did that second remake of Charlie's Angels. Oh my God, I forgot that even I forgot With, that even uh, happened. They right because it came and went so fast, it may, might as well not have been made. But that had a soundtrack song with like Ariana Grande, and that was a big deal. And that song it charted for a week, and it was gone. Uh-huh. And it just that market just doesn't that that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I want to throw in an honorable mention too from Adam's Family Values uh, Tag Team did a version of their Whoop There It Is song called Adam's Family Whoop There It Is, <laughs> which is wait just I mean just check this out. I mean, literally, it's the okay. same song. They just say Adam's family, yeah, and then, yep. boop, there it is. It's like, my God, guys. <laughs> yes. I know this is, I know yes. that, you know, it's like there's such thing as being a one hit wonder, but like, that's the same song. It's, you're just, just doing, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. This makes me go back and, and makes me appreciate stuff like that we make fun of on the show, like Survivor, you know, doing the montage music for Rocky right. Three. Um, but at least that wasn't. It didn't just restate the t- title of the movie over right. and over again. It's the Rocky you know, Three. So. It's the sequel to the Rocky Two. Right. It's the- <laughs> right, right. You're the best there is. You must be the Karate Kid now. <laughs> you know. So, 
It just isn't that. So, so I don't know. So, yep. All right. So Halloween has, uh, is the best holiday in the world. You know what I call Christmas? Red and green Halloween. Uh, Almost Halloween. So, uh, yeah. Too cold. Halloween is my favorite holiday. You know what my second favorite holiday is? Next Halloween. Before we wrap up the show, I got to give you the answer to the trivia question. All right. I have my answer ready, Bill. So. The Friday the Thirteenth series takes place centered around Camp Crystal Lake, which is a fictional location. But that fictional location is located in a real state. Where is Camp Crystal Lake? I'm going to say it is located in the Punjab state of India. That is not even a good guess. <laughs> okay, uh, is it in Oregon? No. Is it no? no. California. Must uh, be California. Nope. Um, actually, you probably couldn't be any further away. Camp Crystal Lake. Rhode Camp Island. Crystal Lake is located Rhode in Island. New Jersey. No. Uh, Camp Crystal Lake is located in New Jersey. In Friday the Thirteenth Part Three, they go to a convenience store, and there is a map on the wall of New Jersey with like a little "You Are Here" kind of a, a star oh. on it. That is the only time they really imply that it's in New Jersey. There's also Jason Takes Manhattan, which they take off in a boat and they would, end up. It would be wicked hard to get there from California. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, a long I, way I around. Yeah. Logic Jason that. takes the Panama Jason, Canal. <laughs> oh, yeah, Jason takes an Amtrak. Uh, <laughs> or yeah. a plane. Oddly enough, though, uh, Jason Takes Manhattan was not filmed in Manhattan. It was filmed in British Columbia, Canada, which you couldn't get any further from. <laughs> from Manhattan. <laughs> well, where was where was the where was the first Friday the Thirteenth film? It was filmed in California, right? It wasn't filmed in New Jersey. Uh, uh, filming was shot in around the townships of Hardwick, uh, Blairstown, and Hope, New Jersey, in the summer of 1979. Wow, I had no yeah. idea. So, huh, go go yeah. figure. All right, so that wraps up the show for this week. Happy Halloween, everybody. Stay Happy Halloween, stay everybody. spooky. Yep. Trick or treat. We'll go watch some horror movies and uh, have yourselves a good time. And uh, we'll see you next week. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. All right, see you guys. Bye, everybody. A very special thank you to our close personal fiend, <clears throat> sorry, friend, Jerry Vane. You can find more of his music at jerryvane.com. That is B-A-Y-N-E. Thank you so much for listening to the Twiddly Podcast. We look forward to eating you later. <laughs>